0: What do you stand for? And, wh- and what I mean by that is not, not necessarily physically stand for. You stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, or you stand for the National Anthem, or you stand to sing, or you stand for God's Word, or you know, physically, literally. But what do you stand for? What does your life represent? What, what is it all about? When people look at your life, what do they see? They, they look at you and go, oh, that person is this. That person is that. Maybe you're, um, if you know, you're here in the northwest, and and when your car drives down the street, they, they see the uh, Seahawks bumper sticker, and they go, Oh yeah, this person that has another Seahawks fan. There's another twelve right there. Or they they, they pull into your driveway, and they see. Um, a flag in front of your house, and and uh, you know it's got the Seattle Sounders, you know, or something like that. And you're like, oh, okay, those—that's somebody from the Northwest. Somebody who loves our; those are our teams. Those are the people we belong to. And so that's what you stand for. Or like my neighbor has the—he's got the uh, the the white star with a kind of a bluish kind of field background. And I'm thinking, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know. <laughs> We don't need no cowboys hanging around, you know. This is this is Seahawks country, right? So, what do you stand for? That question um, was, I think, very uh, uh, visibly, uh, very powerfully expressed and answered in the life of of a man named Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell. I don't know if you know his story. I I love his story. Like, Eric Liddell, uh, Chariots of Fire. Anyone seen that movie? Yes, some of you have seen that movie. If you haven't, you need to find it. You need to, uh, there you go, there you go you need to watch that movie. You need to, you need to see the story of Eric Liddell, a 1924 Olympic runner. He was Scottish, and he, so he ran for Scotland, but he also ran for um, Great Britain, and he was a man of great character. He was training to be a school teacher, but God was kind of pulling on his heart and, 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 ca- and calling him to something beyond that or to use that teaching. He was, he was a great science teacher, actually. But to use that skill and that ability and that training um, overseas in China as a missionary. He was actually born in China to missionary parents. But he discovered at a young age that, that he was fast, God God made him fast. God made him a fast runner. And he loved to run. And so there he was, 1923, preparing for the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris. And the word got to them, not like in the film, um, when he was just about to get onto the boat, but he knew several months ahead that the race schedule was going to require him to run one of his qualifying heats for the 100-meter dash on a Sunday. Now, he was a strict Sabbatarian in the New Testament era, meaning that the Lord's day was Sunday, and he did not work on Sunday, and he did not race on Sunday. And he gave up many opportunities for trophies and awards and medals because he refused to run on a Sunday. And those were his convictions. But he um, he discovered that that heat was going to be on a Sunday for the one hundred meter. That was his race. That was was a race he was favored for. That was what God had gifted him to do. I mean, God had given him all the skills to run fast for about nine and a half seconds to to get down that track and win races. And he said, I can't do that. So what what am I going to do? Well... Maybe there's an opportunity for them to change it. And he requested that, and he asked for that. And the British uh, Olympic Association, they just didn't understand what he was about. And and this is one of the things he said when he was trying to explain why he was doing that. This is not just about me. He said, each one comes to the crossroads at some period of his life and must make his decisions for or against his master. So there he was at the Olympic Games preparing to run in a race that he wasn't seemingly well-suited for. He was going to run the 400-meter. I don't know if you know about track and field. 400 meters is four times as long as 100 meters. Is my math right? Okay. It's a very different race. It's a completely different race different strategy different ways of training and he only had a few months to train for the 400 well he won his heat i don't know if he ran i can't remember if he ran one or two heats but he got to where he was going to be in the final and they put him in the very worst lane possible <laughs> And he knew he was going to be in the very worst lane possible. He wasn't going to be able to see any of the other runners. He's just going to run on that out, very outside lane. He's uh, not going to have any clue of what's going on with anyone else or how to pace himself for that short 400-meter race. And in the morning, as he was leaving the training facility, one of his supporters gave him a note. He opened it, and it said this. In the old book, it says, He that honors me, I will honor and then, with the statement, wishing you the best of success always. Well, I hate to be a spoiler, but Liddell went on to win that race, setting a world record in that 400-meter event. Pretty, pretty awesome story, but, but think about what Eric Liddell stood for. He stood for his king. His speech, his life, the way he lived his life, and his gifts that God had given them, they were not for him. They were for his king, his master, his Christ. They were all centered on him. So I'll ask you again, what do you stand for? We're not, we're not all going to be Eric Liddell. We're not all going to have that stage or maybe that skill set. But every one of us are going to be faced with decisions in our lives, what are we going to say? How are we going to act? What, how are we going to use the gifts and resources that we've given us? So when people look at you, maybe a way to ask this question, when people hear you speak, what do they hear? When people see the way you live your life, um, when people see how you use your money and your resources, what do they see? Our challenge um, today is to kind of answer that question maybe in a slightly different way. The question is, are you Christian? And we're going to look at that from Acts chapter 11. So if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 30. Acts chapter 11, we're still working our way through um, our study in... Um, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, or more accurately, the Acts of Jesus and His Spirit through the Apostles. Um, But look with me at Acts chapter 11, again, beginning at verse 19. Follow along with me, would you, as I read it aloud. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place during or in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father, this is, the, this is your word to us, God. I pray that you will give us the humility to receive it as such, to let go of our own, um, our own opinions, our own traditions, our own values, and to receive what you would have us to receive from this word today. God, we need the Holy Spirit to give us insight into this, to help us to understand what it is that we're reading and what we're talking about today. And Father, we need your power to be obedient to it. Help us to obey. Not to be hearers only, but also doers. To put this into practice in our lives, day in and day out. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. The big idea here is that Christ makes people Christian. Okay, that's as as I could have but it, I could have simplified it even more. How about Christ makes Christians? And that, how about that? Three words, that's the big idea. But more than that, it's Christ makes people Christians. Or Jesus, who because that's who they were talking about, and that's who they were preaching. Jesus, who is the Christ. So it's not Christ, is not just his word, but it's, it's more like a title or... It's really more like a fulfillment that Jesus is the Christ. It's that Jesus makes people into Christians or makes them Christ-centered. I, t- t- take your pick, alright? I have like six big ideas, and they're all worded differently. You take your pick, you write down one of them, and just go with it. The point being, though, that that's what God is doing here. In this story we're seeing the scattered church continuing to preach Jesus. And they're saying that Jesus is Lord. And then we find that the people in this one city are being called Christians. And we're like, okay, cool, Christians. Because you know what? For 2,000, almost 2,000 years, that term has been commonplace. And we think of ourselves as Christians. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're a Christian. And it's, we don't think much of it. But here is, here is a time and a place when people were first called Christians. What did that mean? It meant something. It meant that their lives, the, their speech, the way they gave, the way they lived the way they were generous, all of those things made people, you know, sit up and and look at them and wonder and and go, hey, these guys are like Christ. (laughs) These guys are adherents to Christ. These guys represent Christ. There's something about them. Well, I want to look at three basic ideas and I'm hoping that we can do that briefly because... I discovered a lot of stuff this week. My, my, notes are really, my, my notes are really thick, so I'm going to probably have to leave a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor this morning. But I want to look at three basic ideas from this, that, that Jesus or Christ makes people Christ-centered in their speech, that Jesus makes Christ, people Christ-centered in their lives, and that Jesus makes people Christ-centered in their gifts. Okay or, or you could talk about it like this the first one is christ centered speaking christ centered speaking look at the first few verses so we 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 see um, uh, kind of maybe a, maybe even a time shift here. Uh, Luke is telling this story, and remember he'd been talking about Peter and Cornelius, and we looked at last week, um, Chris brought the message last week, and he showed us that that the the disciples in Jerusalem um, heard the testimony of what Peter and Cornelius had experienced, and Cornelius' household, the people with them, that even the Gentiles were receiving the Spirit, and it caused them to return back to the Gospel and think about, what is essential here about the Gospel? What is it that makes us um, disciples, followers of Jesus and transforms us and filled with the Holy Spirit? It's not our Jewishness. It's Jesus. It's the gospel. And so now Luke shifts back to, now those who were scattered. So you should remember back to um, chapter 8. When we saw that the church and the disciples were scattered all over the place, and they were scattered, and they went out, and wherever they were scattered, they preached the word. And we see the same thing happening here. But Luke tells us that those same scattered disciples were going into places like Phoenicia, which is over on the coastline, and Cyprus, which is a little island off of the, off of the coast of uh, Palestine, that area. And it's not really little, it's, it's a biggish island. And... And a place called Antioch, which was about 18 to 20 miles upstream from the coast of of the Mediterranean in what we know is the very, very southeast corner of Turkey. And then it was part of, of the region that they called Syria. They went there, and they spoke the word only to Jewish people. They told the Jews living there that, that Jesus is Lord. But there were some of them, some from this island of Cyprus and some from a place called Cyrene, which is in northern Africa, Libya area. They spoke to the Hellenists also. They spoke to the Greek-speaking people there. They spoke to people who were non-Jewish. And they told them about the Lord Jesus. And it says that the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So we see a scattered people going out as they were before, preaching and teaching, Jesus is Lord. Now, something that I discovered and, and kind of just had to be reminded of, I guess, again, is that this scattering thing, this theme of scattering, is all throughout the Bible. <laughs> in the Old Testament, in, the Prover- in, in Proverbs, in Job, in Second Kings, in Exodus, to, just to name a few, throughout the prophets, every time... Um, the, 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 the talk, there's talk of being scattered. It's a divinely initiated act. And it's always a negative thing. Jesus, or, or, or God scatters um, Israel's enemies. It's a negative thing. But God is behind it. He's the one doing it. Or, Or God scatters His own people. Sends them into exile. That's a negative thing. It's not a good thing. But here in the New Testament... God is scattering His people, but now that scattering is not a result of a curse, but that scattering brings a blessing. It's God's people going out to the nations, and God's people being faithful and indiscriminate witnesses. It should remind us about uh, where we are at, and where we're sent, and what we're all about. Where have where have we been scattered? We saw that theme before, a few weeks ago, and we need, to re- we, we need to be reminded of it, that there are still those places that God has sent us, and he's calling us to speak in a Christ-centered way. Specifically, the apostles or, or the disciples here were, were speaking that Jesus was Lord. The, the word Lord is, in Greek is kurios, and they had this, they had this phrase, Jesus kurios, Jesus is Lord. But they also had a, another phrase, and it was that Caesar, Curios, Caesar is Lord. That Caesar is the Lord. In other words, he's the king, he's the authority, he's the ruler, he's the one in charge, he's the one that we pay homage to. Now, Jesus' followers are saying, no, 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 no. It's not Caesar is Lord. It's Jesus' is Lord. And they're speaking this in a very uh, Greco-Roman city, Antioch. The third largest city of the Roman Empire. I didn't realize that until I did a little research on that this week. The third largest city in the Roman Empire, only Rome and Alexandria were larger. Antioch is a huge city. Thousands and thousands of thousands of people lived there. And there were many uh, Jews living there from the diaspora, people they, who had been sent out or dispersed over the last few hundred years. And it was a free city. And, and those who lived there had the rights of citizenship in the Roman Empire. So if you were a Jewish person and you moved there and you set up a synagogue and you established your life there, you were granted citizenship. And you could live in that free city. And it was a city full of of architecture, uh, full of great buildings, full of of temples to various gods, full of immorality, full of all kinds of, of eastern and western religions, all kind of melding together into one place. Not unlike a lot of our cities today have people from all kinds of ethnic groups coming, people bringing their own religious beliefs, and they are all seeking after their own gods and looking after their own insights. But the people came preaching the Lord Jesus, a a different message, a message that said Jesus is Lord, and they were responding to that. N.T. Wright um, puts it like this, the message that was being presented. Israel's hope has been realized, he says. The true God has acted decisively to defeat the pagan gods, to create a new people through whom he is to rescue the world from evil. This he has done through the true king, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. More on that later. In particular, through his death and resurrection, the process of Implementing this victory by means of the same God continuing to act through his own spirit in his people is not yet complete. One day the king will return to judge the world and to set up a kingdom which is on a different level to the kingdom of the present world order. When this happens, those who have died as Christians will be raised to a new physical life. The present powers will be forced to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and justice and peace will triumph at last. That's a good summary there. Of Maybe that's, that's, that could be a summary of what the disciples were, were preaching to the people. They were summarizing that, look, the one you're looking for, the God you're looking for, the, the fulfillment that you are, you are after is not in the pagan gods. It's not in the gods of Rome. It's not in the gods of the East. It's not in the gods that you're making up out of your minds. It's in Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus Curias. Jesus Christos. He is the hope. For you. And not just for the Jewish people, but for all people through His resurrection, through His death. And then God continues then to work in the world through His people that he's created, that he's made into Christians. They believed, it says. A great number believed, who believed, turned to the Lord. When we see, John Stott says, when we see the Lord adding to the Lord, when people are preaching the Lord, and people are putting faith in the Lord, and people are turning to the Lord, so that he is both subject and object, is what he said, source and goal of evangelism, we have to repent of all self-centered, self-confident concepts of the Christian mission. The people were going to these places, they went to Antioch, not for themselves, but for the Lord. They didn't go there to establish themselves as great missionaries. We don't know their names. We have no idea who these people were. They're totally unnamed. They went and they preached Jesus because the Lord was their message, not them. They didn't go there for themselves. They went there for the people. And the words that they spoke were not to to build them up, to lift them up, but to lift up His people. So we who belong to Jesus. We, who represent Christ in the world, are now here to implement God's plans for, for saving the world around us. We are His hands and feet. We are His voice, to be more precise. We speak Christ. We don't do anything all that different than what Jesus did. And if you think about what Jesus did, he came proclaiming the gospel of God in Mark chapter 1. He taught in Matthew 7 as one who had authority. And he said later, John 14, that the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. He came with the authority of God because they were the words of God. He spoke... Um, he spoke In parables, not in riddles, not to complicate. But he spoke, when he spoke and had conversations with people, he wanted them to get spiritual meaning out of those conversations. He didn't just shoot the breeze for the sake of it. There was probably very little small talk going on in Jesus' life. But it's interesting that that what he he didn't say is also, I guess, as, as interesting what he did say. Because Isaiah 53 says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And in Mark 14 we see that he remained silent and made no answer when he was being accused of garbage, of lies. He didn't strike back. He didn't talk back. His disciples said, you have the words of eternal life. Jesus spoke in such a way to give glory to God, to present truth. Colossians chapter 4 verse 6, Paul says this, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer or how you ought to answer each person. What do people see? Or what do people hear, I should say, when we open our mouths? What kinds of things come out? Is it Christ-centered speech? Is it speech that's there because Jesus has transformed us from the inside and has made us Christian? He goes on. The second thing I want to show you is that, is that Christ makes people Christ-centered in their lives. Or you could say Christ-centered... Living. Christ-centered living. The, the, the report in Jerusalem, the, the elders there, they, they hear this report and, and they go, we need to check this out. There's some, there's some crazy stuff going on up there. Um, Barnabas, you're a faithful man, go up there, check, this, check things out, and report back to us. And he comes and he sees the grace of God, it says. And he exhorts them to remain faithful to Jesus, to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Uh, persevere, don't give up. And he, he, uh, he, he sees more people added to the Lord while he's there, and then he finds Saul, brings him, and then they, for a year they teach them. There's a lot of things going on here. But I want to uh, help us understand that, that when Christ um, transforms a person and comes into them, that he changes the way they live. He changes them so that the, 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 the want-tos are different. That the things that people stand for are different. If you, if you think about what was going on in, in Antioch, in a place like Antioch, if you think about the paganism, if you think about the idolatry, if you think about the immorality, and, and, and consider how would one be a Christian in that environment? How would one be, be firm on their convictions? probably going to look a lot different. In fact, you're probably going to look rather counter-cultural. And maybe that's exactly what is needed in the church today, in the river church, in churches all over this valley, in in churches all over um, this country in North America. That as the culture shifts, Christians look more and more oddball more and more accusations are being cast at believers, at Christians, and at churches. Because Christians don't live like the rest of the world. They don't practice the same things that the world practices. But here's the thing. Barnabas says, Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Why is he exhorting them in those things? Because it's very easy for us to be drawn back into the old ways. Or to just say, I can just add Jesus to my life. And it's going to be good. And I'll have heaven when I die. So I can continue to live the same way as the rest of the world, do all of the same things that the world does, and value all of the things that they value, but call myself a Christian and just add, and, and be, be good to go. But Jesus doesn't give us that option. <laughs> Jesus calls us to him and says, Forsake the world, forsake the old life, forsake the old ways, and be countercultural with me. Remain steadfast to this. Persevere in your faith. And so for a whole year it says, Barnabas and Saul taught the church a great many people. Um, this is incidental, but kind of an aside. An observation on this: that when when the church is countercultural, when there's Christ-centered living going on, people are going to respond to that. They're going to see that, and they may either respond with hatred, they may respond with uh, rejection and betrayal, they may also respond by going, "That's something set apart. That's something I need to hear." And then guess what? Discipleship is going to need to be taking place. People are going to need to know what they're what they're putting their faith in. They're going to need to keep learning Jesus. To become a follower of Jesus. They're going to need to learn, they're going to need to know more than just um, Jesus is good news for you, and you can say a prayer and go to heaven when you die. They're going to need to know that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah. And that's the very thing that's behind the scenes, that's not explicit in this text, but is explicit everywhere else in the story of Acts and the apostles. That Jesus is the Christ. They're going to need to know that. They're going to need to know what it means to be Christian. The apostles and the the, the disciples... um, many times in acts up to this point talked about Christ Jesus as Christ back in acts chapter 2 paul said that god has made him jesus both lord and christ in in again in that same chapter paul says or speaks of the resurrection of the christ and later when he's teaching them uh, outside the temple He says, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And then he offers them, he says, repent and believe, respond to Jesus that he may send the Christ appointed for you, who is Jesus. And then after being beaten and persecuted, the disciples come back and they rejoice that they were considered worthy of being beaten for the name of Jesus and they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And then when we see the church scattered in Acts chapter 8, they proclaimed to them the Christ. And, and Philip preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, the Christ. This, is, this, is, this needs to be taught. That Jesus is the Christ. What, what, would, what does that mean for us? Because we may not have Jewish messianic things floating around our heads. Like, what's the Messiah going to be like? Who's this going to be? What does it mean for us to, to seek Jesus and to know him as Christ? It means that we need to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of our longings and our hopes. That's what he was for the Jewish people. They were longing for uh, redemption. They were longing for restoration. To, to, they were longing for a king who would set things right. They were longing for justice to be done. They were longing to for, for real and true and lasting peace. They hoped for that. They longed for that. And Jesus was that fulfillment. And Jesus is that fulfillment. But more than that, He is is the fulfillment of all of God's redemptive purposes and plans in the world since creation. And we need to latch on to that. And we need to grab a hold of that. He is our King. He is our fulfillment. This was vividly illustrated by a man named Polycarp. Strange name, I know. But one of the first great martyrs um, after the apostles. And here's what happened to him after he was hunted down and arrested and brought to, to the arena where they said, well, if you don't recant, if you don't say Caesar is Lord, then we'll, we'll, we'll let the beasts loose on you. And he argues with them about that. If you don't say Caesar is Lord, then we're going to do this or that to you. And he says, hey, you know, do what you want. His answer as recorded in history, was, I have served Christ 86 years, and He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King? I am a Christian. That's who I stand for. That's who I live for. I am a Christian. Jesus said, You're the light of the world. You, Christian, disciple, follower of Jesus, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it in their basket. But they put it on a stand. And it gives light to all of the, in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that may, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is talking about the way we live our lives. We live in obedience to Him. We live a countercultural life. People go, oh, you're a Christian. Well, maybe that's, kind of, maybe that's kind of how the people in Antioch meant it. Oh, you're a Christian. I know who you are. You're one of those people. You're different. You don't follow the rules. You don't do the things that we do. You probably, you're probably judging me right now because you're different, because you stand for different things. You're, you're, you're a hater. You're a bigot because you are a Christian. Maybe that's what they thought. Maybe that's where it came from. So be it. How can we blaspheme our King? Bear the name of Christ proudly and live up to uh, His name through the power that the Holy Spirit gives us. But this final point is, is very brief. That Christ makes people Christ-centered in their gifts. We could call that Christ-centered giving. Christ-centered giving. This little paragraph just kind of tagged onto the story of the people in Antioch shows that, that, that the reconciliation of the cross had done its work. That Gentiles, Jews, were sitting at the same table celebrating Jesus together, worshipping Him together in one name. They were, they were distinct from the synagogue and they were distinct from Caesar's temples and the temples of all of the other gods. They were distinct from all of those things. They were Christian and their Christ was gracious and generous, and giving to them. And so, they saw a need in the world, and they r- resolved, determined, to meet that need. So, of course, we see the prophet coming, and, and proclaiming a, a, a famine that, that did happen during the reign of Claudius. In fact, the h- historians tell us that during Claudius, the emperor's reign, of which was about how many... 15 some odd years long, or maybe it was less than that. But during his reign, there were famines all over the place. It was, it was kind of a mess. Is, is, his reign was marked by scarcity, they say. But there was a, a great famine in Judea during his reign. And this was what was foretold by Agabus the prophet. So they determined. They wanted to meet these needs. And they, there they were in Antioch, a, a rather affluent place. This is, this is the middle to upper middle class church of Antioch. It's kind of all, all full of all kinds of people of different stripes and different backgrounds. But they're like, you know, we're doing pretty good up here. Money is coming into this economy constantly. And, and we've, got, we've got money to spare. But the people in Judea are going to go through this famine. And we want to anticipate that and help them. So they did. And they says they sent relief, literally, The word behind relief is the word for deacon in other places. They sent service. (laughs) They sent that kind of help to them. Monetary help in this case. To the brothers, the disciples, the Christians who were in Judea. And they sent it by Barnabas and Saul. And they said, you've been our teachers. Now take this and, and, and take this responsibility and share it with them. There are a lot of things we can learn about generosity, about giving, and not just with our money, but of course with our time and our talents and and other material resources. That when Christ makes a person Christian, it changes the way they view the resources. I was talking with um, some young people the other day about about tithing. And um, it's very easy to, to... tithe 10% of your income and go I'm going to do this tithe and it might be painful at first but there's easy ways to do it and the tithe goes off and you okay now God got his money now I got my money I'm going to spend my 90% and God doesn't give us that option because everything that we have is a gift from him And he told that to the people in Deuteronomy. And he says, I'm the one who gives you the ability to make wealth. You are rich because I have given you that ability. Whether it's the spirit, the skill, the talent, the inheritance, whatever it is. God is behind that. The the, the Christians in Antioch understood that. And they understood that grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for their sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, by him making himself poor and destitute and nothing, that they might become rich. Not not rich financially, but rich spiritually, rich in God, rich in the grace that overflows in a Christian's life. For even the Son of Man, Jesus said, came not to be served, but to serve, using the same word that's used here, relief, service, and to give His life as a ransom for many. The message that the apostles and the disciples, the, the unnamed Disciples, the unnamed witnesses followed up by Barnabas and Saul, and we heard about them, and, and Lord willing, as we move our way through the book of Acts over the next um, decade or so, we'll get to it all. We'll, we'll see more about their lives and how God used Barnabas and Saul. But the message was simple. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Christ. And the irony of this was that Jesus became Christ, became the King, became Lord of all by giving Himself up, by dying for our sake, by being exalted and glorified on the cross. That's how we got our King. That's how they received their King. And it changed them, it transformed them, and made them Christian. Without a king in our culture, how do we respond? Without, without in our culture, a reference point to an all-powerful authority telling us what to do with, our, with all of our lives. We're, how do we respond to that? Well, what do we speak? What do we say? What are the stories we tell? What are the jokes that we laugh at? What are the things that we say in private, the words that come out of our mouths with our friends at work or online? Anyone get in trouble for saying things online? Don't raise your hand. How about this? With our lives, how we make our money. How we give our money. Our generosity. How about this? How we raise our children. How about this? How we choose our careers or jobs or the places that we live. The homes that we buy or the apartments that we rent. How about the activities that we participate in? How about the way we volunteer our time? Or, or, or where we serve others? How about what clubs and organizations or teams or sporting events that we participate in? How about the classes that we take in seminary or in school, in high school, in college, and the rest? How about the books that we read, the things that we learn, the things that we pursue, the certifications that we get? How about the media we consume? Anybody feel their toes being stepped on right now? How about the television that we watch? The Netflix that we view? How about the movies or the music that come into our lives, into our souls through our eyes and our ears? How about the apps that we download? We spend time on. All of those things... I'm talking about every area of our life. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. He is our Christ. How are we going to respond to that? Will we live today and tomorrow like He is not our King? Or will we see Him high and lifted up, exalted in glory on the cross and say, How could I blaspheme my King? I stand for Christ. I am a Christian. Let's pray. Father, you are a great God. Your your grace is unbelievable. You are our King. You have taken the throne way of the cross how could we follow in no less a way how could we claim the title of Christian and live as if you mean nothing to us and God even in the ways that we do and even, even if we could stand here today and go well you don't know my life and the way I give Or the way I live, or the things that I have said. Lord, protect our hearts from that pride. Protect us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We are nothing compared to your greatness and your goodness and your love to us. Lord, fill us, enable us to speak Christ centered to live Christ-centered, to give Christ-centered for your glory in the world because of your great name and the name of Jesus. Amen.